This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days, go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this special Martian Exploration Edition, I speak with Robert Zubrin. But first up, here's the news. A donut of invisibility. Professor John Howell at the University of Rochester has invented a device that can make anything in the donut shape invisible, as long as it avoids their central donut hole. Most invisibility cloaks rely on exotic materials, but the Rochester cloak uses just four lenses. Anyone could buy them. The Rochester invisibility cloak keeps things invisible at many angles, even when you move your head. Unlike previous attempts, and invisibility devices. It also works for the whole spectrum of visible light instead of just for a few colours. It's really a very simple idea. It's just two telescopes with the eyepieces facing each other. Let's say each scope has a magnification of a hundred times. You're looking through one backwards so it shrinks the image and then the light travels through the other scope in the proper way so it magnifies again. The net magnification is times one, no change. But in between the telescopes, the rays of light are narrowed right down by a hundred times, and thus you can hide anything which doesn't block the rays in the center. The ends of the telescopes are wide, the eyepieces are narrow, and the ray of light carrying the image is narrow. So there's lots of space around them to hide things. Naturally, if you step in front of the narrow beam between the eyepieces, you'll block the light and give yourself away. It's like a donut of invisibility. Professor Howe suggests his device could allow surgeons to see what they're operating on as if their hands weren't in the way. Better lenses will eliminate distortions, and playing with the right distance between the eyepieces will maximise the angle from which you can appear to see through things. But you could build this one at home easily. Just buy cheap $15 binoculars or two cheap telescopes, face them eyepiece to eyepiece and you can build an invisibility donut for yourself. Fly my pretty and take my photo. Nixie is a photo taking quadcopter that lives on your wrist like an old fashioned watch. When you want to take a photo of yourself that looks better than a selfie, You push it off into the air, where it flies up, takes your picture, and then flies back to you. No remote control needed, it knows what you want. You catch it when it flies back, and wrap it back on your wrist. 
the inventors have a video demonstrating this on their crowdfunding site. It's very cool, but still has a lot of development to go before it will be available for sale. The Nixie was invented by Stanford University physicist Christoph Kostal, with his team members Helena Hovanovic and Michael Niedermeyer. The Nixie is a finalist in Intel's Make It Wearable competition, so they've already won $50,000 and all the Intel mentoring and technical support they need to make the wearable drone happen. And they could also win the competition. Just think, if you attach the Rochester cloak to the quadcopter, you could have an invisible wearable drone. Now they just need to make it silent and we're all in trouble. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Is there life on Mars? India's Mangalyaan robot spacecraft successfully moved into orbit around Mars last Wednesday, just days after NASA's spacecraft MAVEN moved into Martian orbit. Mangalyaan has sensors to look for signs of life on Mars. The Indian Space Research Organization, ISRO, boasts that the spacecraft is made from 100% Indian source materials and components. While NASA's MAVEN spacecraft cost $671 million to build and send, Mangalyaan cost only $71 million, which is less than a Hollywood movie. India also managed to reach Mars orbit on the first try, something no other nation has been able to do. Both MAVEN and Mangalyaan took advantage of a Hohmann transfer orbit. Walter Hohmann described this procedure in 1925. One rocket impulse moves the spaceship into an orbit between the two planets, and a later, second rocket impulse takes it out of the interplanetary orbit and into orbit around the target planet. After launch, it had to travel around the Earth several times to reach a fast enough speed to slingshot to Mars. The Indian Mars Orbiter mission carries five instruments. A photometer, a methane sensor, an instrument to analyse the Martian outermost atmosphere, a thermal infrared spectrometer, and a colour camera. The instruments will be looking for water and methane in the atmosphere as indicators of life. The data will be sent back via NASA's Deep Space Communication Centre. The Mars Orbiter mission's first photo was uploaded to the Indian Space Research Organization's Facebook page, and the spacecraft's Twitter account tweeted, The view is nice up here. Mangalyaan will work for six months, then run out of fuel and fall out of orbit. There have been 21 spacecraft from four different nations in the last 49 years. In 1965, NASA's Mariner 4 flew close by the surface of Mars and set back the first photographs and data. In 1969, NASA's Mariner 6 and 7 flew past Mars for more data. In 1971, NASA's Mariner 9 was the first spacecraft to enter an orbit around Mars. Later that same year, the Soviet Union's Mars 2 lander crashed on Mars. Then Mars 3 later landed softly, but died after 14 seconds. Fortunately, the Mars 2 and 3 orbiters sent back lots of pictures and data. In 1973, the Soviet Union's Mars 4, 5 and 6 sent back more data and photos from Mars orbit. But again, the attempts to land softly failed. In 1976, NASA's Viking 1 and 2 successfully landed on Mars. In 1997, 
NASA landed the Mars Pathfinder base station and the first wheeled robot on Mars. In the same year, NASA's Mars Global Surveyor orbited Mars. In 2001, NASA's Odyssey used a gamma-ray spectrometer to find hydrogen in the soil, which was the first suggestion that ice water was hiding on Mars. In 2003, the European Space Agency's Mars Express carried the Beagle 2 lander, which was lost. In 2004, the Mars Express orbiter discovered methane in the Martian atmosphere. In 2004, NASA's Spirit and Opportunity robots landed on Mars. They found conclusive evidence that liquid water once existed in several places on the surface. In 2006, NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter mapped the surface of Mars. In 2012, NASA's Curiosity rover landed on Mars. Its laser chemical sampler can determine what rocks are made of up to 7 metres away. And now, it's Maven and Mangoyard. 21 robot spacecraft coming to Mars. So, enough with the robots. What about sending humans to Mars? The European Space Union plans to land humans on Mars around 2035. President Obama has said he expects the US to land humans on Mars around 2035. Which brings us to the Mars Direct program, a path not yet taken. In 1990, NASA engineer Robert Zubrin published a paper with a plan to get humans to Mars using existing technology cost-effectively. His plan was to send robots to land on Mars that would set up factories to make methane and oxygen for fuel from the Martian soil and atmosphere. Astronauts would follow, with the trip made much cheaper by the fact that they didn't have to carry their return fuel. They could resupply from the factories, explore for 18 months, and then return to Earth. He projected it would cost $55 billion over 10 years, well inside NASA's operating budget. In 1996, he released his book, The Case for Mars. In 2000, he visited the University of Technology, Sydney, and spoke for the Mars Society Australia. The Mars Society is an international organisation dedicated to furthering the cause of sending humans to Mars. Ultimately, NASA rejected his plan in favour of the Constellation Project, which was to use nuclear spaceships for ten times his budget. President Obama cancelled Constellation in 2011. The new NASA plan relies completely on the embryonic commercial space industry to develop new technology to take Americans to Mars, eventually. I attended Robert Zubrin's talk in Sydney in 2000, and afterwards interviewed him in an empty classroom using my pocket cassette recorder. I offer you now the almost wax cylinder quality recording of Dr. Robert Zubrin in 2000, outlining the case for Mars and the Mars Direct program. If NASA had listened, would we have had humans on Mars already? Here's Robert Zubrin talking about the future we didn't have, but still could. I began by asking him,
And that was Dr. Robert Zubrin in 2000, talking to me about the Mars Direct program and why we need to go to Mars. You can find out about the Mars Society at www.marssociety.org.au. Dr. Zubrin still travels the world talking about Mars Direct, and he's revised and updated the plan. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and apparently on astronomy.fm. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, Radio On Demand and On The Go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for videos and photos and links about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to support the show directly. I'm putting together a crowdfunding campaign for Diffusion on fundscience.org.au. It might take a few weeks before we go live. It's a lot to work out. I'd really appreciate hearing from you about the funder rewards you think I should offer and what people and subjects you'd like me to cover if only I had the funding. For example, I'd like to do more panel discussions if I had a second microphone. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Why do we all want to be up there, up there? What is there to do or see up there, up there? Outer space is the place where we'll trace the There's a lot of who knows what away up there. Now that I think of it, why do we want to be up there? Because we're people, members of the human race. We thirst for knowledge, we we want to know. And we do know that new frontiers and discoveries are waiting for new pioneers and scientists away up there. Outer space is the place where we'll trace the future there.